I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Eve. Third time's the charm. Yeah. Yeah. We can't we can recur during Mercury retrograde. It's fine. <sighs> Why are planets? Uh, so. We're on the final stretch here. Thanks for bearing with us uh, for the past three episodes. It's been a lot of information. This is probably going to be the most fun of the four, hopefully. You want to tell us why? We have some guests, some longtime friends. We have Carmen Longoria Green with us, and we have Sarah Jones with us. Um, and I'm just going to let them introduce themselves. We got the experts. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Carmen Longoria Green. I am the board chair for the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. And we fight parental rights extremism all day, every day. And I'm really happy to be here, talk about this movement and everything that's going on. During the rest of my life, I'm a lawyer. I have litigated against ADF and all the other bad guys that Kieran and Eve talk about on the show all the time. For a while, I was at Americans United for separation of church and state. So for me, like this is a long time, long time coming to be able to uh, be here and talk to y'all about everything that these people are up to these days. And I'm Sarah Jones. I'm a senior writer for New York Magazine, where I write often about the Christian right and most recently about parental rights. I also worked for Americans United for Separation of Church and State for a while, where I did a lot of like research and reporting on the Christian right. And I come from an evangelical home. I was homeschooled for a little while. Uh, I went to a really conservative evangelical college and I'm now uh, none of those things. So that's me. Welcome. So we've been talking about, you know, the history of all these issues and kind of like how we got here what's next? What do we do now? How do we fight back? Yeah, well, that is a big topic. Um, it's a big I topic. Guess, it's, it's a good away. topic. It's an important topic, but it's a really big one. Uh, what's next? Uh, let's see if we can dive into this without sounding too um, doom and gloom and like terrifying to your listeners. But I guess the first thing I would say is what you have already been describing, describing to your audience is really just the tip of the iceberg. Think of parental rights extremism. It's ultimately a response to Brown versus Board of Education. It's a response to their perce- their perception that they have lost control of the public schools and that they have also lost control of how information is disseminated to people. I have to remember also, 1950s, 1960s, this was an era of censorship. Like you couldn't even just like put a movie out without people trying to restrict how that movie was viewed or whether it even be allowed to be played in the local town and community. Like this was a different era. That's what they want to go back to. So Brown versus Board of Education happens. The censorship laws that used to be common sense, they started falling away. You have this realization that they will no longer be able to have their schools be institutions that teach what they want people to learn. And the homeschooling movement was born. Then they spent the next 40 years really perfecting the propaganda and the rhetoric and the political movement, the power of the political movement to be able to completely deregulate homeschooling. And they managed that. 
in all 50 states. And after that major political victory, they have turned their eyes to the public schools. And that's what you've been seeing in the past couple of years, all the parental rights bills that are coming out, all the attacks on public school administrators, the outright fights just breaking out in school board meetings. All of that is culmination of decades of movement building and organizing that they have been doing. And so this is just the beginning. They have been building for this for decades and hold on to your hats because it's going to be a wild ride. Yeah, I think one thing I would add to that is just emphasizing how anti-democratic this whole push is. So when I look at the parental rights movement and what they're trying to do right now and what they've tried to do in the past, one common theme that I see is trying to take this private sphere of the home, which can be so authoritarian and kind of expanding it outward and mm -hmm. taking over public spaces. So this is really about school privatization as we're looking at a lot of these uh, these bills. Um, it's occurring alongside pushes for school vouchers to expand charter schools, really to make the public school resemble the private homeschool as much as it can. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this is occurring alongside efforts to like essentially rig the country the way they want it to be through the courts, which is not very democratic. That got me into a lot of heat recently, but uh, that's that's what I tend to think. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So we've our listeners are familiar with that piece that you shared about this. I'm curious what, if anything, there is to take away from the response to what you wrote. Like, can we learn anything from how people are like reacting? Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like you've gone over that piece already. Um, but just to recap for anyone who's interested, I wrote a piece about the parental rights movement that really wanted to like sort of change the conversation from talking about parental rights to talking about children's rights. And I'd been chewing on this for a long time as I was recently on book leave and I had uh, some time to think. And I, I viewed it as like an attitude that stems really towards the belief that children are property, which is itself kind of connected to the way they view rights in general is not being innate to people, but something that can be sort of given or taken away depending on how they fit in this hierarchy mm -hmm. uh, that they want to enforce. And so I do view it as being inherently anti-democratic, like small D democratic. And so I basically wrote that piece and I figured that it would make some people angry. I did not anticipate that it would make quite as many people angry as it did. That was a little bit new for me. There was like a segment on Fox. There was a New York Post article with a selfie of mine in it. The oh Fox segment. I'll link. I'll link to it in the show notes. The the Fox segment was really interesting to me because it had two Fairfax County parents, people of color, coming on to talk about like how this would be infringing on their parental rights. It was a really interesting reaction. Um, Carmen, did you have anything you wanted to say about that particular yeah. response? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was interesting as well. And so these were folks that basically live just like down the street, metaphorically speaking, you know, Mike Ferris and his cronies. And I can't help but think that that's not a coincidence. Like, why is it that on a national segment, it wasn't like the local Fox affiliate, this was like, you know, the, the Fox News, mm -hmm. they yeah. found two people from the same county where HSLDA is located to be the like the response spokespersons to Sarah's piece. Like that can't be a coincidence. I no. think there is a lot more 
savvy political maneuvering on that part than anyone really wants to like give them credit for. Like it's mm-hmm. not just random moms who are upset about their child children reading a book in school and they founded Moms for Liberty or what have you and it's just swept the nation because this is such a terrible thing. Everyone feels so passionately about it about it. No, this is a well-funded political movement that has leadership from the top that is telling people what to do. And the fact that they were savvy enough to respond to Sarah's piece by having two non-Christian people of color be the individuals that respond to Fox News, like that was very intentional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it also shows, it shows the power of Sarah's piece because it got that kind of reaction. I think Mm -hmm. they reacted that way because Sarah hit the nail on the head because she said the response to parental rights extremism isn't, as a lot of people have been saying, oh, more parental rights just for the good parents. No, the right answer is to focus on children's rights. And as soon as she said that, it was like all hell broke loose. I think part of it too is that I kind of represent what I think a lot of them fear in itself too, self-aggrandizing, but like, you know, I was homeschooled for like, oh God, I forget how many years, not quite K through 12, but close. And my parents did all the right things other than maybe putting me in public school for a couple of years. And like, I turned out the way I did. And I think that frightened a lot of people and freaked them out. So. Yeah. There's a lot of that going around, which I think is like kind of fueling a bunch of their fervor as they're seeing a lot of their adult children who they raised and molded very carefully to like go do the thing, grow up and be like, no, how about we don't? How about we do the opposite of that? And so now like it almost feels like it's coming from a place of desperation in some way. Like I, and this could just be me projecting because I live in Berlin and I'm like, I want them to be desperate, but it feels very desperate. And just like, we need to have control because like our first plan didn't work. So we're going to just squeeze harder and hope that's better. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. The Joshua generation did not turn out the way we were supposed to. And therefore, the answer is not, oh, maybe we should rethink our parenting. The answer is we need to restrict access to information even more. Like, I don't know about Sarah, but when like I was homeschooled, I had pretty much free reign of the local public library. So it mm-hmm. is it kind of makes sense that they're cracking down on libraries because obviously that was a source of me getting information that turned me the way I am. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the, the the stuff I was able to just like read on the slide while my siblings were in the kids department, just like going through the stacks and picking stuff up, and like even if I wasn't taking it home, there was this thing where like my parents couldn't access my library records, like they couldn't tell what I was checking out at that point. Um, because I, I remember like asking the librarian because I wanted to check out your smutty book. um and i don't know if that's the case everywhere but like i that that was like something that protected me and you know it's exactly the the crux of this issue is that the child has rights and we don't need to be giving more rights to the good parents yeah power Mm -hmm. is being misused in some segment of society you don't respond to that by giving that segment of society even more power and i'm sure that there are people who are parents who might respond like emotionally strongly to that because oh well i'm a parent i would never harm my kid and i'm sure that's absolutely true for people who are like you know the good parents who are really trying to be affirming to their children and make sure they have all the tools they need for an open future but not all parents are like that 
we're all living proof that not all parents are like that. And there's a lot more people just like us who have those same experiences. And so the answer has to be not like a Pollyanna, oh, you know, we just give enough rights to the good parents, it will all turn out okay. But to make sure that people as individuals are recognized as individuals with human rights, and that includes children. And children need to have mechanisms in place to protect themselves. And that just means a bit at a very basic level, a right to education. Yeah. A right to yeah. access information. Like that has to be something that everyone recognizes a child has, whether or not their parents want them to have an education. And not all parents do. No. So taking them seriously and not underestimating them seems to put them on the run and make them really scared. How else should be we be approaching this in terms of like being proactive and responding and, you know, raising awareness and messaging? Yeah, I know there's something that like Sarah and I have talked about before. And one theme that we have, you know, ranted about, uh, just in our private conversations is how so often well-meaning people on the left think they can just work with parental rights extremists, try to get the good parts of these bills passed, quote unquote, good parts, and um, think that, oh, there are some good intentions here because these individuals pushing parental rights extremism, they must just want to, you know, protect kids. And we all want to protect kids. Everyone wants that. So let's try to work with them to get the good stuff passed. And that's a fundamentally a problem. I was just going to say that a really good example of that is a new federal bill, that's a bipartisan bill that's been introduced. I'm going to pull up quickly the press release here to make sure that I get my details right. But it would require parental consent for minors to use social media. Um, oh, and yeah. Set a- set a minimum age for, for social media users to 13 and stop use of algorithms for teens under 18. And this, again, is a bipartisan bill uh, with Democrats and Republicans working together. And it would require social media companies to, in their words, undertake really rigorous age verification measures, which I don't see how that's enforceable without eventually infringing on people's civil liberties. But this also seems like it's potentially really damaging for queer kids who are looking for an affirming space, perhaps on the internet that they don't have in real life. And that seems to have escaped the democratic sponsors of this bill entirely. Yeah. And these bills have also state level versions of this, of the, these kind of restrictions have been placed passed recently in Arkansas and Utah, not bastions of democratic politics, but still know that this is something that a lot of people see as a bi- on a bipartisan basis is, oh, we're protecting kids from bad things on the internet. And knowing is going to disagree that there are some bad things on the internet. But if your response is, we're not going to allow kids to have access unless their parents consent, you're putting a lot of kids who do not have affirming parents, a lot of queer kids who do not have affirming parents, you're putting them in a trap. Because mm-hmm. particularly if they're homeschooled or they are otherwise educated in a way where they don't have an affirming environment, you're basically restricting their ability to, one, learn about themselves and have access to a community that will be supportive of them. And that is going to have an absolutely devastating effect on their mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the argument I would make it in response to all this is just like, well, he should be trying to like work on restricting the algorithm so that nobody is seeing Andrew Tate videos <laughs> rather than just protecting kids from, you know, running down the, the, the neo-Nazi right. you know, incel pipeline. Everyone should be 
protected from that. This should not be an age restricted access. It should be like we're, we're fixing how the infrastructure of the internet works, not who can get in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, on the other side of that too, is like who decides what the content is like who, who decides like this is something mm-hmm. a child can and can't see. Mm-hmm. And it's, if it's the people who are writing these bills right now, then like, you know, we had safe eyes on our computer and I couldn't look up anything about the human body for science, like anything with like queer in it, even to just look up like the dictionary definition of queer, which is blocked. Like there is no, it's a lot of censorship and it's going to hurt the people that are, you know, allegedly supposed to be protected. Yeah. And I think that shows how the right is using language, like the language of parental rights, the language of protecting children. It's very seductive. Like Mm -hmm. everyone's like, oh my goodness, there are bad things on the internet of all types, whether it's pathways to neo-Nazism and the incels, as we mentioned to, you know, obviously child pornography. There are lots of, there are dangerous people on the internet. We can all admit this. But when your response is, oh, we need to exercise more control over human beings and limit their civil liberties, like that's a serious problem. But the right is using this language of we're going to protect kids. And we know that all parents, you know, they just want the best for their kids. And we should trust parents with this, that and the other. They're using the seductive language, coaxing the left to come along Mm -hmm. to get their political agenda in place. But there's always something more going on there. They're not really about just protecting kids. They're about having control over the dissemination of information. Because remember, they want it to be like the 1950s, where you had incredibly strict censorship and children did not have access to information about things like, what does it mean to be queer? And they certainly didn't have access to information about America's genocidal history or colonialism or any of the other things in terms of like the CRT bans that they're trying to put into place. Like it's a systematic denial of information about all these different things they used to not be able to get information about. And they want to go back to that time. This reminds me a lot of the, the study that we did about the history of like children's rights, parental rights, and like children as like people with rights you know, a lot of that was tied to like women's suffrage and as women stopped being property and started having legal rights, like children were left where they had started and they were not brought along for this evolution of gaining power socially. And I think it really is like telling that it's just like these you know, moderate liberals trying to do bipartisanship and find places to compromise that are like overlooking like these intersections of like power and autonomy and who we're leaving behind. Like those are the people who've always like overlooked those kinds of questions. And those are the ones who are willing to like, you know, let something go because we'll get to it later. And like, well, the children aren't in (laughs) these legislative bodies standing up for themselves so we're not hearing them complain so we don't need to like you know we we can hear from them later when they're adults right and i think it's like it's so it's so easy for people to forget what it was like to be a kid 
because we spend most of our lives as adults and most of our childhood, we're all taught to like, you know, be seen and not heard and obey and like, you know, comply with whatever it is that our parents want. And we like find ways around that as part of growing up. But when we grow up, like, I don't think we all unnecessarily unpack how oppressive it was to be a child unless like we're forced to. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of policymakers just have never had that reckoning. And I think a lot of people who are like, you know, more moderate Democrats, like, you know, doing politics, like that just doesn't, they're just like, oh, like, you know, kids, they grow up, kids are resilient. Like we don't have to worry about kids, even though it's like, but the kids, they do grow up and they they have damage that they have to work through. And like, we could, we could make that better maybe. But I, I mean, think if there's they're a lucky, huge they disconnect. Grow up. If they're lucky. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I think there's a couple things going on here. One, the left traditionally is very, very bad at seeing what the right is really up to. And by Mm. the right, I mean, really like the Christian fundamentalist political movement. So RIFRA is a really great example. I'm sure your listeners are aware of it because you talk about it. But like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed in like 1993 as a bipartisan effort. Like Mike Ferris was behind it. Mike Ferris and his cronies. And they always intended for it to become a tool through which fundamentalist Christians could avoid things like civil rights laws. We didn't get into this as much as as we probably could have. Do you want to like talk about a little bit more about what, sure. what it does specifically? Sure. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is a federal statute. And it basically says that if the government is infringing on your religious freedoms, the government has to satisfy basically this test called strict scrutiny. It's something taken from Supreme Court case law. It's usually used for very important critical human rights like free speech. And it means that in order for the government to do the thing it's doing, a court is going to ask, is there a compelling government interest that the government's trying to achieve? And is it using the most narrowly tailored way of achieving that interest? Basically, is this the only way the government can make this really important thing happen? And there's no other way that we can do this in which, you know, we would infringe on people's rights less. The way that this test has been interpreted and applied by courts of appeals and by the Supreme Court now means that because they passed RIFRA back in 1993, an organization like Hobby Lobby that says it's a privately owned organization, a privately owned business, but by someone who is religious and does not believe in birth control, now can say, I don't have to obey what the Affordable Care Act says about needing to provide services in my insurance coverage like birth control coverage. I can ignore that because I don't believe in birth control. It's against my religious beliefs. And therefore, I can run my business in a way contrary to law because the Religious Freedom um, Restoration Act gives me basically carte blanche to Mm -hmm. ignore laws that are contrary to my religion. You can imagine all the different scenarios that this can be applied to. And the far right is very litigious and is very willing to litigate these cases and have basically systematically challenge things like civil rights laws, anti-discrimination laws to establish precedent that under RIFRA and state level statutes similar to RIFRA, they don't have to obey civil laws that apply to the rest of us because their religion says you get to do that illegal thing. The left agreed to pass RIFRA back in 1993. Like this was a bipartisan effort 
And folks just agreed, agreed to go along with the right on this. They agreed to this because they thought that they were going to be protecting religious minorities. They thought that they were going to protect people who are otherwise, you know, like treated badly and persecuted by fundamentalist Christians. And instead, like that might've happened in a few cases, but by and large, RIFR is used by Christian fundamentalists to enforce their Mm -hmm. uh, own religious beliefs on others. And the left did not figure this out. They did not figure this out until like the 20 teens. By which case, <laughs> the case was lost. Yeah. The cause was yep. lost. And I remember being in law school in a class at Georgetown filled with people who, like, you know, had, like, progressive political beliefs. And I was explaining to them how RIFRA was bad. And they were got, got mad at me. They thought that I was prejudiced or biased against re religion and particularly religious minorities because I said RIFRA was going to be used to hurt people. This is like 2013 or something before I even, you know, graduate from law school, like the decision started coming down from the Supreme Court doing mm -hmm. everything I said that they would say. But how did I know that? I'm not a genius or anything like that. Mike Ferris had told me that that's what they were going <laughs> to <Right>. do. Right. <laughs> that was for those who, who may not have remembered, Mike Ferris might have written Carmen's law school recommendation letter. Yes. Because okay, he thought she was going to help him out. Yes, I went to Patrick Henry College, <laughs> Mike Ferris's college for homeschool alumni, and he would just tell us these things. And he had a constitutional law class where he walked through all this stuff and all their plans. And like Mike Ferris became like the president of Alliance Defending Freedom like a few years after this. And so all this was in the works. And yep. if anyone had been paying attention earlier, he probably would have told them too, because they don't hide this stuff. They're just there's, doing it. Right. There's the layers right. here of like the evidence that we can show you because we it's been on the news and the evidence that we can't show you because we heard it at the dinner table in the dining hall that one time. I was at camp at Patrick Henry and it was just part of like the lecture. Like uh -huh. it's just Yeah. But I mean, this is long pattern of the left is playing checkers and the right is playing chess. And we're doing it all over again in response to mm -hmm. parental rights extremism because it's really, really hard to get folks on the left to see how dangerous this really is. Well, and, and the, the left has this intolerance for conflict that really just, you know, you their inability to sit with the divide of perspectives and values and wait for something better to come along. Instead, they're just like leaping across the aisle being like, what if we gave you this little thing and this little thing and this little thing so you'll stop being mad at us? Which is not the how anything works. No, no, it's not. <laughs> like, yeah. I think too that there was this tendency and I can speak more to how I perceive this being treated in the media but I think outside of niche publications, like maybe Religion News Service, which are kind of dedicated to, to covering these different organizations, and there's been a real decline in religion coverage across, across the media. You have very few dedicated mm -hmm. religion correspondents, which is a factor. But also, like, I'm a political journalist, and when I say that, it's with, you know, I write for a magazine, I get to have an opinion. Someone writing for the New York Times doesn't. But <laughs> I as a political journalist watching other political journalists like coming up in in media 
I kind of felt like there was a tendency in the political press to not take these organizations or this movement seriously mm-hmm. and just sort of dismiss it as a fringe thing. I think especially during the Obama years, there was this mm-hmm. sense of triumphalism, especially in the liberal press, uh, where it's like, we won, we've got a Burgefell, where, you know, things are looking up. Like, if you look at the polling, of course, the young adults are are not only secularizing, but liberalizing on a number of issues, especially LGBT rights. And there was that sense of triumphalism and all Which is while, all true, like, but those kids don't have but, power yet. <laughs> Exactly. But in like, and also it doesn't matter. You can, if you have the courts, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can kind of ignore what those kids believe. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. And I do think that there was a tendency to kind of dismiss it as a fringe movement. Like I remember working for AU and like trying, like going to the value voters summit and like listening to these people talk and it not really getting a lot of coverage outside of like we're in new service or maybe you get a perfunctory piece at the New York times that really focused on like the horse race stuff, like who these people were going to vote for and not necessarily what they believed. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions to those rules and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but that's generally what I noticed. And I think we're sort of the press is, especially the liberal press is waking up now. And, but it's been a long time coming. And also I'll just like give them the credit of like, they were, you know, coming up in their careers in a like dying ecosystem of journalism. So like, it wasn't easy to like survive, let alone like, you know, be savvy to these things and like be able to speak up against it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the horse race, like there were market incentives that they had to contend with. Um, The horse race analysis was that style was dominating political coverage and it doesn't really lend itself to like nuanced or ideas based coverage, which I, view as an integral part of political journalism um there's not a lot of money in that <laughs> nope yeah i mean i think it also reflects probably the broader like communities that they were part of i know when i talk to people mm-hmm. who aren't ex-fundies but they you know they grew up in liberal houses they're progressive politically themselves you start talking about this stuff and up until a couple years ago they kind of looked they looked at you like you had grown a second head yep um, they thought of mm-hmm. like you were really paranoid and that you were overreacting because you had a bad childhood. Like it's only in the past couple of years that you can talk about something like Christian nationalism and people take you seriously. Yeah. I yeah. think Trump changed a lot of things. And when evangelicals lined up behind Trump, that wasn't a shock to me or to any ex fundy that I knew, but it really shocked a lot of people in the press. Um, and I think they're playing catch up now. I mean, the number of times that Kieran speaks on Christo fascism and Mike Pence, like at Autostraddle, still gets like cited. People are still people, people like waking up because they read that piece and like figuring it out. Like it is exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. That was like six years ago now. And people are still like, oh my God, I read this piece. What, what? And I'm just like, dude, I've had a podcast for five years. Please go listen. <laughs> that, that will, that will get you up to speed. You're welcome. It's, it's nice that it's nice that they're taking it seriously now, which means that like, maybe we have a chance to like get people to listen a little bit more as they're trying to like, weather these negotiations around parental rights and like censorship Yeah, absolutely. I think one problem that we keep running into here at CRAG is making sure people link Christian nationalism to the parental rights extremism movement, because not everyone recognizes they are one and the same. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not that people are like antagonistic to that viewpoint. It just hasn't occurred to them that those are the same things. And so you point out everything like, okay, all of the anti-trans bills, all the anti-gender affirming surgery, anti-drag bills, all of the library book ban bills, all of the parental bills of rights, they are all connected and coming from the same people. It's ADF bingo. It's ADF bingo yep. and all of their like cronies and friends, but people are seeing them as like six different buckets of things that all have their own different like advocates who are pushing for these things. And therefore they're responding to them in six different ways. And it's not an integrated, oh, these are the baddies and we need to have one like consolidated response to them because this is the America they're trying to create through all these different mechanisms and tools at their disposal. That's really, that's where the conversation has been for CRHE. It has been letting people know that what we do here at CRHE is advocate for homeschooled students we do that by fighting parental rights extremism, and that means we fight it everywhere it shows up, which includes its attacks on public school, its attacks on libraries, its censorship goals, and um, labor laws, its labor child laws, marriage, yeah. all of it. And all of these organizations are really our natural allies, and we should all be joining together to respond because each of these like issues, they do have advocates already. There are already lots of advocates fighting child labor laws. There are already lots of advocates working to protect trans kids and queer kids generally. But like we all need to be working together because we all have the same enemy. Mm -hmm. Which is actually a really good point to kind of like move forward to like so how should we be having these conversations with people we know or like on the internet like when we see an article that like almost pieces it together like what should we be adding to that conversation oh that's a big question i think the first thing would be if you see something that's like an example of parental rights extremism let's just use like the Florida don't say gay bill. As an example, they recently expanded it. It used to be only for a few grades in elementary school. Now it's from first like kindergarten through 12th grade. Now you can't have instruction on any of these topics related to LGBT issues. When that comes up in conversation, it's not only about transphobia and homophobia. It's fundamentally about controlling kids. It's fundamentally about controlling people's access to information and it's about creating a populace that will be ignorant and meek and will not rebel against the far-right political agenda. And it should be pointed out that that's the ultimate goal. And they're not going to stop yeah. at the trans kids, at the queer kids. They're not going to stop at them. They are attacking the most vulnerable first because that's what they do. But don't don't segment that as like, oh, this is just an LGBT issue and, you know, we only need to think about it this way. No, this is this is an existential crisis for public education and we need to take it seriously as such and recognize it for like what the wider goals of the movement are. Mm -hmm. I think that's really good advice, especially if we're talking to liberals who are kind of new to this and are trying to like figure out what the hell is going on because there is so much going on. I think we have to remember to like public schools are really popular. Libraries are really popular and the right wing agenda is not very popular, which is why they have to do things like go through the courts. So I think those are really smart and like corrupt notes to hit with people is like really play up, play up our strengths, I think. And, and kind of meet people where they're at. On my end, like I've been having a lot of conversations. I think 
specifically with my mother lately, she's, she and my dad have moderated a little bit over the years, which is both frustrating and good for a lot of reasons. But um, like, they don't support Donald Trump. They don't like Ron DeSantis, like not on board with that. So that provided a bit of an opening where I've been able to talk to her a little bit about some of these bills, like some of the anti-abortion bills, some of the anti-LGBT bills. And like one thing I've been playing up when I have those conversations is really, really emphasizing the cruelty of it. She is probably never going to affirm LGBT rights in the way that I would like her to, but she's not a cruel person and I can appeal to that. And that's been successful and I think has dissuaded them from coming around to somebody like Ron DeSantis. But of course, this only works when you're talking about when, you know, when you're talking to people who are a little more moderate and who are a little alienated from the GOP agenda. And I think that's increasingly rare and difficult mm-hmm. as the Republican Party and the conservative movement more broadly just becomes sort of cannibalized by the the fringiest elements that are at work but i take these conversations where i can get them and that's uh, that's the angle that i've been using personally i think that's a really good point because the stuff that kind of like led us out at least me and kieran was that like we are not cruel people we want to be like consistent with these beliefs that we have been raised with about being kind and being generous and being fair and like, you know, caring about people who are suffering and like those values, if you're sincere about them can be a really like clear way out. If you keep coming back to it and reminding people about like what's at stake. Yeah. And I think that's actually pretty common. Like that was absolutely a factor in my own like move away from conservative Christianity but if you look at some of the polling on like LGBT and trans issues specifically like it's not that the American people are necessarily enlightened I I would say on on trans issues but like one one consistent theme that I have seen in the polling is that they also aren't necessarily fond of bullying and Mm -hmm. like if I think of liberals in the left can sort of play that up and like really emphasize the human toll that this is taking and the way that repro rights groups are kind of doing with abortion rights right now. I think that's really potentially important and moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think another thing I would say is oftentimes people respond to parental rights extremism by borrowing the language of the movement. Mm-hmm. They're say, well, of course, parents have the right to do X, but, and then they say this, you know, this is too far. Or they're say, well, this movement is not really about parental rights because what about my right to have my child read, you know, to kill a mockingbird, whatever. Flag. <laughs> Red flag, right. right there. People naturally fall into this type of language because parental rights extremism has had 40 years of affecting our political discourse. And so now it is common to talk about things like, oh, a parent's right to do X. Parental rights are like, they're like a legal term of art at a family law. It's like used to determine who has the right to like make, you know, like custody decisions. Like, you know, where's the child going to sleep? And like, what, you know, are we going to enroll them in like public or private school or stuff that's litigated in family court as part of like divorce proceedings or, um, you know, custody proceedings and stuff like that. They took this like term of art and they contorted it into something that they now are using as like a political tool. Hmm, Where have we seen this before? (laughs) 
exactly. They have only like one or two plays that they do again and again and again. And somehow like no one ever like figures out how they're getting to the end zone. I don't understand. It's so bad. It's like, it's, but I would really like challenge everyone, like watch your language. Like, why are you saying the parents have the right for their kid to read To Kill a Mockingbird? You should be saying kids have the right to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And when you are a parent, you are an advocate for your child. So if you are like the good guys going to the school board meetings to fight the Moms for Liberty crowd that's trying to strip down your curriculum, you should be going up to the podium and stridently saying, my child has a right to an education that will prepare them for an open future. That means they have a right to learn accurate U.S. history. They have a right to read all of the literature that has been critical and important to the development of like American culture and political thought. They have the right to read about people who are different than them and what their lived experiences are. And they have a right if they are a queer child, if they are a child of a racial minority, they have the right to also have representation in their curriculum that looks like them. That is something mm-hmm. that my child has a right to. And that's what they should be screaming, you know, from the rooftops. My child has a right to this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're just not seeing that language. And it's it's dangerous because if you're not using that language, then you're just having parental rights against parental rights. It's the parental rights of the right versus the parental rights of the left. And that means in each individual school district, suddenly it's going to be about, like, who outvotes who. So mm-hmm. in some school districts, you're going to get to read To Kill a Mockingbird, and to some, you won't. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like slow down. Every time you're, you're, you're compelled to use the term rights, just flip it and make it about the kid, not about right. you. Yeah. You're just changing the subject matter of the sentence. You're still advocating for the same thing, but it's a much more powerful You're refusing argument. to play in their sandbox yeah. that they've delineated. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's really hard to, you know, try to show yourself as advocating for children's rights when you are actively taking them away and someone is calling you out on it by being Mm -hmm. like, no, the child has a right to an education, not the parent. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, the parent should decide whether, no, the child has a right to an education. Like, yeah, it's a a lot more difficult to like slip away when you're focusing on the kids' rights. Right. And this applies in other scenarios too, like the gender affirming care cases. A lot of the litigation Mm -hmm. that's involved in like Florida and I want to say like Indiana and Tennessee, the good guys are saying, well, these statutes that would prevent trans minors from receiving gender affirming care, it's not that they're violating the minors' rights. They're saying, oh, this violates the parents' quote unquote fundamental rights, which is a legal term of art, to direct the, you know, upbringing of their children. And they're saying, well, that should include making sure that they have gender affirming care. And that argument is borrowed directly from the parental rights extremism, Mike Ferris, fundamentalist Christian playbook. They're trying to use their argument to do a good thing to protect trans kids, but they haven't thought about the next step, which is even if they win those cases, all that they have done is seal the fate of trans kids who do not have affirming parents. Mm -hmm. Because if the court says, oh, well, this statute can't apply, when a parent says they should have gender-affirming care, that court ruling is, well, what the parent says goes. So when it's a non-affirming parent, and the next court case is a trans kid trying to get the medical care that they deserve, and the parent doesn't want them to get it, 
their fate is, is sealed. The court's already mm-hmm. ruled in its previous case, well, what the parent says goes, mm-hmm. and your parent said, no, too bad, so sad, get out of my courtroom. Yeah, the access yeah. is, is what cemented, cemented in that, like, being connected to the parent, being th- going through the parent for access. Yeah. Right. And so it's, again, good people trying to do good work are misguided and are trying to use the language of parental rights to protect kids when really what they should be doing is focusing on the rights of children. Yeah, I think those are really important points. I have noticed a lot and I've seen the same bent in like some media coverage as well, just focusing. And I, I wanna personally cover more parents who are kind of fighting back against against these parental rights bills too, just because I think it's important and interesting. But I do worry about the language of parental rights just becoming like everywhere. Um, and people not really realizing the implications of that mm-hmm. words mean things <laughs> as it turns we say out this all the time <laughs> well i think that's a good note to end on i if there's anything else you want to like drive home before we close and tell people where to find you on the internet or not yeah i guess i would just close with saying again this is just the tip of the iceberg parental rights extremists have have a lot more plans in store. And this is really something to be aware of. And I hope folks start, you know, talking to their communities, talking to family and friends about like what this really means. CRHE Coalition for Responsible Home Education is on the front lines fighting this movement. You can find us at responsiblehomeschooling.org. All of our socials are responsible homeschooling. And yeah, give us a follow, um, sign up for our newsletter and learn how you too can help support us and this our fight against this movement. Yeah. So you can find me in a lot of different places. I mean, you can check for my coverage at New York Magazine. I'm also on Twitter as at one Sarah Jones, all spelled out. And then my email my professional email is sarah.jones at voxmedia.com. And I want to hand that out just to let people know that I'm going to be covering these parental bills going forward. And I do want to hear from people who are fighting them in their communities. And if you are one of those people, I'd love to hear from you. So drop me a line. Awesome. Thank you both for being here and for all of the incredible work that you do fighting this fight. It's, it's so good. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all yeah. on the same page with exactly how much this yeah. matters. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you for taking the time from doing the other work on these issues to come talk about the work you're doing on these issues. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Oh, happy to. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. This is probably going to come out after the fact, but um, one thing to keep your eye on is uh, the day of the homeschool child, our first day um, of advocacy around awareness of what happens to homeschool kids who do not have rights uh, is April 30th. Uh, We'll be repeating our awareness campaign for that next year. Um, But go check out dayofthehomeschoolchild.org. It's part of CRHE's work around this issue, just to kind of see the rundown of what we're focusing on for this year's National Child Abuse Awareness Month. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. 
To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.